Concerns about exacerbating congestion and crowded public transport systems in our city with continuing population growth is now a popular issue. The need for fast trains between major cities and regional areas in Australia has been suggested for a long while to spread the population away from our capital cities. It now seems as though it is the politically right time to dust off the proposals. In the recent Victorian state election, one party promised to upgrade all of the rail system, including incorporating four fast lines. And some people and organisations in New South Wales, which will have a state election in March 2019, have raised the idea for fast trains from Sydney to at least Newcastle and Wollongong. It's important to note that fast trains are not super express trains we see in Japan, China, France or Spain. Professor David Hencher, the founding director of the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University, puts it in perspective. I think it's a big challenge that the New South Wales government is very interested in, is how can we build a railway between Newcastle and Sydney that is only one hour, Mm. 150 kilometres an hour? It's not high-speed rail. No, no. It's not your Japanese. No, it's not all that. But it does require major upgrade of the existing track, which in some cases may mean new alignment. We know the government is interested in that, and I think it's got to be linked back to taking pressure off Sydney. In an address to the Institute of Transport Engineers in Victoria, John Reid, whose company Traffic collects and compiles transport data, said that considering the impact of new technology is not just about mechanising, computerising or robotising what we do at the moment. It's about what will change and how we can foster new patterns of behaviour to produce more livable cities. Fast trains are not just about reducing the travel time for existing travellers. They're about enhancing city and regional areas. Again, Professor Hencher. One of the criticisms of much of the cost-benefit analysis in recent years, in fact going way back, is that it's been limited to a dominant measure of a benefit called travel time savings. And all the other effects that we think are important have not been factored in. So we've actually had a huge confoundment with time savings and all these other factors are important. Now what we're doing, we're trying to separate them out and measure them and quantify them and say that in fact... If it's just time savings, it's not really worth it. You've got to be giving some multiplier impact that relates to the benefits to the location. So I don't mind if it's five minutes or it's 10 minutes or whatever. What I do mind about, what does that translate into in terms of land use value, the environment in which you want to bring up your kids, good access to essential facilities? We're talking here, by the way, about cities, right? But in fact, this is becoming an even more important issue when you go into the regional rural areas. Mm -hmm. And so we need to start thinking about what does this all mean in terms of connecting rural regional cities, which is something that New South Wales government is putting far more emphasis on today than it used to be, which is a good thing. And so, for example, if we can get one of my hobby horses at the moment, I must admit, if we can get fast rail from Sydney to some of the key regional centres like Orange and Dumbo, fast rail is not high-speed rail. We're talking about maybe 150 kilometres an hour. It could be a tilt train if the current track can't handle anything faster on a normal train. That will improve access to hospitals and education specialists, etc., which they currently don't have except for having to travel for many more hours. And that makes the environment in which they live in Orange much more livable. Livability 
is involved with access as much as location. It is critical that our approach is that the concept and the intent for the regional centres comes first. How you service the regions with transport is a consequence of what you want them to become. A recent report titled Building Up and Moving Out from the Federal Standing Committee on Infrastructure, Transport and Cities recommended high-speed rail between cities and regions with the East Coast to be given priority and spoke of the London effect. Planning expert Bob Meyer has looked closely at the UK example. Every time you go to the UK, you tend to go out to Milton Keynes, don't you? Yes, I've been following Milton Keynes since the 1960s when I worked in London and studied there for a while. And it's been quite fascinating because it was the largest new town ever attempted in Great Britain for 200,000 people or so. And I've been following it regularly. It's about, what, 100 and something kilometres out from London? No, 80. 80 kilometres, yeah, as the bird flies, uh, direct. It's developed up as its own character and its own intent and, and its value and its input? Completely from green fields almost to a whole new city of it must have reached its maximum, 200. It'd probably go beyond that. So I have followed it, and the point is they publish quite a lot of their stuff. Why did it start? What was the push there? Because I know it now that it's a centre of development for, in many ways for autonomous and connected vehicles there. So who, what pushed it in the first place? Well, it was part of the British Newtown program, which really, as you know, it started early as the garden suburbs, but the real... Newtown program started after the Second World War when they were trying to get the uh, industries and the employment out of London because um, London was too congested and they, you know, a lot of bomb damage and so on and so forth. So places like Stevenage and Harlow and those cities, but they they were really for about 60,000 people or so. So as this new town program kept going, it was accepted by the community and was quite successful. Milton Keynes probably started, or the idea started in the late 50s, early 60s, I would say. And the thought was, look, this should be on the next step up from the earlier stage one or phase one new towns. So it was for this population of 200,000. I think it started off at about 150,000, which is about twice as big as the biggest new towns. It was accepted for about 200,000 people. It was in the Midlands and um, it's not that far away from Birmingham and, and some of those areas. Also, it was halfway between Cambridge and Oxford, which may have uh, given it a certain status and so on. So a lot of work was done. Llewellyn Davies Weeks were the uh, town planners and again a lot of stuff was published and some of it they people were critical of it they didn't like the grid pattern and all the roundabouts and it's sort of known in a funny way that's got more roundabouts than any city in the world but um, that's just being a bit cynical mm. but it does it does work when I was last there about 18 months ago the town planner there told me something very interesting. 
that there are more people now coming into Milton Keynes to work than go out of it. That's a point, isn't it? It's a two-way street, these regional areas. And, of yep. course, it gives some area to do things like manufacturing, even in the modern sense, be it computing or manufacturing or whatever. It's not just the people sitting at a desk in the middle of London. There's a diversity there, isn't there? Exactly right. So there is quite a bit of manufacturing going on there. And I think that's its strength, that it's not the big Manchester-type development, but it's more sophisticated development there. You know, it's reached its maximum population, or it's getting close to it, and therefore there are enough jobs there to keep them going. But people are still travelling out of Milton Keynes to London and Birmingham and what have you, but there are more coming in now than going out, which is very interesting. That's the development you're really pushing for a number of reasons, including the off-peak, or not the off-peak, but the counter-peak direction, doesn't it? You don't just want everyone going into London and, and then coming out in the afternoon. Well, that is the problem, of course. I mean, that causes the major congestion, as you know, in um, most major cities. And that was the whole idea of the new towns, to get them out of London and beyond the Green Belt, but within commutable distances. But the distances, you know, in London are quite extensive. I mean, they go down to Southampton and Bournemouth and huge distances, up to 200 kilometres. Do you need fast trains or very fast trains then? I'd say fast trains. I don't think they need very fast trains. I mean, if they could have them, I suppose nobody would object to it. But I'd say fast trains. The last time I was at Mil uh, went to Milton Keynes, I went to Euston Station in London, as you know, North London, and it took exactly a half an hour, exactly 30 minutes, to get to the uh, Milton Keynes, which is 80 kilometres away. Now, that's an average of, what, 160 kilometres an hour. I'd say the trains could do 200 kilometres an hour. So that's not very fast, but it's fast. The full interview, which looks at a wider range of issues to do with creating fast connections between centres can be heard as a separate podcast on the ITLS Are We There Yet? podcast site. While we might condemn the media for oversimplifying the issues, much of our computer modelling of transport fails to take into account how many things will change, including land use patterns, when we implement new transport systems. This was part of the discussion with transport planner Chris Stapleton in our other podcast, Computer Modelling for Transport Planning Beyond Technicalities to Practical Solutions. When talking about the consideration for a new fast train in the UK, he said, in part... One of the comments came in out of this conference, was, which I just couldn't believe, was we still don't have a land use feedback. They didn't, I should add, because quite frankly, we were looking at that in the mid-70s, but somehow or other it still hasn't actually happened. And you think, oh my goodness me, you know, you've got to have land use change going on and understand that some types of employment are going to disappear, others are going to appear. For instance, a whole bunch of service industries are going to go to residential areas more, be it delivery vehicles or nurses or carers, and etc., etc. The usual discussion in the press about these trains is to serve journey to work. 
But it is critical to understand that an important transport system is not just to turn regional towns into dormitory suburbs of the major capital city. There will be a significant amount of commuter travelling, but it is not just in the typical peak direction of into the major city in the morning and out again in the afternoon. We now have models where we're understanding the factors that are driving choices on the mode you use, for example, to go shopping, to go to education, to visit friends and relatives, etc. And also, there's an, another market that's been somewhat neglected in the past, and it's employer business. A lot of people are traveling on business, and they're not, that's not going to work because you're not going to your main place of work. Mm. But these are really important issues. And so what I think I would like to suggest, David, is that Many of the modelling systems that we currently see around, including the ones that are currently being used in New South Wales, have a very limited number of particular behavioural responses that society can be seen to do as a result of any change in the transport system. And it's really your change of mode for your commute your change of destination for your commute, and the frequency of travel in general. That's a very limited set of responses. What about changing the time of day you travel? What about trip chaining with multiple trip purposes? What about changing the, your residential location? What about changing your workplace? What about changing the degree of flexibility you have when you actually start a trip and finish a trip? There will, of course, still be a significant amount of commuter travelling, but it's not just in the typical peak direction, that is, into the major city in the morning and out again in the afternoon. These faster trains just give a bigger uh, canvas, I suppose, to do different things, and that's, you know, that, that's fine. And what's interesting is that, and these figures may be a bit old now, the trouble is the... Uh, England only has a census every 10 years, so it gets out of date a bit. We're very well off here with our five-year census theories. But the last figures I got, there were 800,000 people commute into London every working day from what's called southwest England, which is really the, the catchment, down to Southampton and, uh, and all those areas, Brighton, but as you say, it's a two-way movement because the last figures I had was 320,000 people commuted out of London to work in the new towns or the, even the existing towns in that southwest region of London. Now, the reason is, and I've asked people then, they said, look, the young, educated, knowledge workers who can't afford London, it's worse than Sydney, can't afford it, have moved to these outer cities and areas. And the, the companies who employ these people have moved out there to make use of these people, to, to give them jobs there. Mm. And because it's so much cheaper for the companies to set up in the region rather than in London. So it's a two-way situation, and I think that's a good lesson uh, for us. Planning is not just about setting the rules, it is also about consumer choice and what the market will pursue. One thing that I could share with you, which is a really important point, we're doing a lot of work at the moment on business location and talking to the Property Council and some major organisations like Deloitte Access Partners who are specialised in property development and, and, and location decisions. They have told me that if we were to build fast rail between Sydney and Newcastle, there's a high chance a lot of professional organisations would set up an additional office in Newcastle because it's far enough away 
to create a new market, but they would not set up an additional office in Parramatta, for example, because it's too close to the CBD and it's not necessary. So in other words, there's this threshold of distance, which means that there are new markets. Fast trains should not be promoted because we have a romantic vision of railways or that they have worked in the past. They will evolve as part of the solution to our plan for vibrant regional areas. My thanks to Professor David Hencher, Bob Meyer and Chris Stapledon for their contribution to this podcast, which is part of the ITLS Are We There Yet? podcast series.